What's up, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Rico's Watches podcast. I'm your host, Eric, and I'm joined today by a very cool guest, uh, Vern from Watch Studies on Instagram. How's it going today, Vern? Not too bad. Uh, actually, really, really well. Uh, yeah, feeling really good today, feeling really good this week. Happy to be here. Uh, it's been a little bit of a turbulent couple of last weeks, since, but, uh, but yeah, this week's looking really solid. So uh, you caught me at a really great time. That's awesome. I love, I love the positive vibes and the uh, a happy guest that always makes for a good episode. Uh, really quickly, before we kind of get into the nuts and bolts of what we're going to be talking about today, what do you got on the wrist? Oh, so this is kind of exciting. This is uh, this would be the official NWA new watch alert uh, as of this moment of recording. I mean, by the time this actually airs, I suppose it'll be out. But I just got this yesterday just picked it up from the mailbox yesterday but it is a cartier uh basculant 2405 i think basculant basculante i don't know how do you okay come on for the youtube people yeah there we go uh and if you're not familiar with this particular reference it is uh often known as the reverso tank okay because one of the oddest uh features but also coolest features is that it flips Nice. And uh, yeah, I can flip that over, snap that back in, and uh, I believe I'm ready for a polo match. Um, so this, I, the, I, I found this reference like, I don't know, a year ago or something like that and just fell in love with it. And I've been sort of hunting down the right, the right reference and, and the right, uh, you know, uh, in the right condition, right price point, all that kind of stuff. And uh, yeah, I recently came across one by a guy named uh, Alex Vintage Watchers. Alex Vintage, I can't remember the exact name. Really great dude, connected with him over Instagram. He was uh, listing one for sale and just had to jump on it. And it arrived uh, yesterday. So been sporting that on the wrist since. That's awesome. Congratulations and a beautiful, beautiful piece. A very interesting uh, history. I don't know how much polo you play. But <laughs> not at all. <laughs> I have zero practical use for the fact that this thing flips over, besides the fact that I can get some oohs and ahs occasionally if I ever get to show somebody. <laughs> it's, it's a neat feature. I mean, I've seen the one that I've always, like, I, I guess it makes sense when you're thinking about it in relation to like the reverso that it's essentially the same identical feature. When I've always seen like, photos of it because people always kind of like the photos they set up or it kind of like you know cantilevered up with kind of like they always have they're always showing the feature of the flip yeah yeah yeah. and i've always looked at it as like a like a travel watch essentially like people setting it up on like their nightstand so they can check the time like a clock but i'm like i didn't know it was for polo but now that i've now that i thought about in that context it makes perfect sense but so, that's my, I mean, that I have, I have done zero research on that, but I think I, at some point had read a little anecdote about like the original reverso being uh, designed for polo players or, or, or people who were engaged in athletic activities and wanted to still wear the watch, but then didn't want to damage the, uh, the, you know, the crystal and dial and all that kind of stuff while you're roughing around. And so they just flipped it over and then, you know, the watch was sort of protected at that point. Um, that was that that's kind of what I remember from it. I literally didn't even look it up. <laughs> no, I mean, you're, I think you're, right, you're right about you're right about the uh, reversal part. I know that part was definitely. Okay. Polo, but what with regards to the Cartier, I didn't, yeah, know, yeah, right, I didn't right. know that, that they made a watch in response to that or yeah, if it right. was just something that came later. But that's interesting. I'm curious about that now, too. We'll have to. I'll have to dig it up. Yeah. I have to study that watch later. <laughs> <laughs> nice. <laughs> wow, it'd be uh, 
it would be a missed opportunity if I didn't uh, pick that low, that low hanging fruit. We'll have to so, drop that a couple more times over the course of this conversation. There you go. There you go. Cool. Well, that's awesome. That's a really great piece. Uh, super cool. I haven't had one on the show yet, so that's a, that's a first. And it's a it's a beautiful watch. I mean, and and Cartier's. I mean, they're they're so cool. They they just they're doing some really awesome things. And they yeah. Uh, the last few years, they've been on absolute fire as well too. They've been doing a really good job. Yeah, I've been trying. I I feel like uh, amongst like my friends and and, and and community members, I've been trying to be like that Cartier evangelist. Like I've been a big fan of theirs for a couple of years. And mm. uh, when my daughter was born uh, in, in 2020, I picked up a, a Santos large to commemorate her birth. And uh, that's when I fell in love with kind of the watchmaking side of, of, of Cartier. And I have just been in love with that watch for so long. And um and yeah, some, you know, in the last year or two, it's just really kind of had this resurgence. And I think the industry has known it for a while, but the community is really starting to see it as we're, mm-hmm. we're seeing a lot more uh, tanks and Santos is just kind of popping up across the community. I, I love it. The fact that the Cartier family on, uh, on Instagram is, is growing is, is a really great sign. And it means more people can kind of share that love and passion for the brand and their, and their watches. What really drew you to, uh, I guess, specifically that model of Cartier? So my daughter's name is Atlas and she was named uh, after sort of the long journey that my wife and I had taken through the course of our, uh, our, our uh, first, our friendship and our relationship in order to come together and, and, and actually, you know, create a family together and, and all that. And so my wife and I, we uh, were both from Toronto originally, and we met, you know, 14 some odd years before we reconnected in San Francisco through very random means, but we were really great friends during school time and then kind of, um, uh, kind of lost track of each other, but reconnected every now and again. And then, um, when I moved to San Francisco, that's when we reconnected and, and ended up and together and getting married and, and such. And so, uh, we were always big on traveling. We, we, um, uh, you know, traveled to a lot of different places over the course of many years. My, my wife lived in many different cities and we always just kind of laughed at the idea that like, we went kind of around the world and then found ourselves back into a different city at the same time. And, um, there's a lot to be said about the kind of how serendipitous that um, that reconnection really was. And so we named uh, our our daughter Atlas sort of to commemorate those travels and explorations and also just to kind of encourage her as she kind of grows up to have a more uh, worldly view and be more open minded and go and explore and, and things like that. And so when, uh, you know, when when she was uh, coming and you know, I was trying to think of like, okay, well, how am I going to commemorate her birth? And of course, a watch was going to be the way that I was going to do it. And uh, I was thinking, you know, what would be fitting? You know, do I go GMT, you know, travel time kind of a watch? Um, and as I kind of looked further into it, I realized that the Santos is actually known as like one of the first, if not the first pilot's watch, right? It was, uh, it was, it was designed by Louis Cartier for his, his buddy, Alberto Santos Dumont, um, who was just kind of creating the, the earliest aircrafts. And it was just too dangerous for him to take out a pocket watch because uh, he needed both hands on the wheel and, 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 and steering uh, these kind of ships. And so he needed something he could kind of really quickly reference the time on. And so, uh, Louis Cartier ended up creating the Santos for him, which uh, not only is a pilot watch, but one of the very first men's wristwatches. 
Um, and so it was the, you know, the epitome of a tool watch because it was there to help it as a tool while uh, Santos Dumont was, was flying those early, early vehicles. And so I, I was like, wow, what, what better watch with what better history uh, and heritage to it than the one that was literally created for a new generation and culture of travel and exploration. And that's everything that my wife and I named our Atlas uh, uh, for. And so it just kind of felt really right. Um, and Cartier as a, as a brand was a brand that I had started working with just like uh, a, a year or two before that and had always been really kind to our family and had helped us celebrate some, um, some milestones. And so it just like, it just felt like a, a lot of the stars had aligned at that point. I was like, wow, I hadn't really thought too much about Cartier watches. Uh, but as I looked into it, I was like, this is just absolutely perfect. And I'm so glad I went down that route because I've just fallen in love with, you know, essentially the entire back catalog of Cartier. And, uh, you know, this is, you know, this piece is really exciting for me. This, this, the, the Cartier Basculante is really exciting for me because it's like my first foray into uh, uh, sort of a vintage piece. This is from 2001. So, I don't, you know, by some definition, that's vintage-ish. Um, and it's, I, I feel like it's really the beginning of, of a new direction in my collecting journey. And so I, I look forward to discovering new references that a lot of people don't know about and that still have equally interesting history to it. Uh, but yeah, long story short, that's, that's kind of the gist of it. It was, it was the birth of my daughter that really kind of triggered me looking into it and then falling in love with the Santos and Cartier as a whole. That's outstanding. What an incredible story. And obviously a watch with so much significant meaning to you. That's, that's wonderful. Um, on my wrist today, sort of the antithesis to a beautiful, elegant Cartier is my 2009 Panerai, Panerai uh, Pam 25. So yeah. This is uh, sort of, I guess, like 2009, sort of like that, like neo vintage. I don't know. I mean, we're, we're getting there. It's kind of yeah, weird yeah, to yeah. think about like something from 2009 being vintage. I think I was just probably just getting my driver's license around then. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's uh, it's a great piece. I, I wish I had nearly as uh, well thought out and uh, fascinating story as you have about why I bought it. But honestly, I just liked it, thought it was cool. I like the history. That's a lot. all you need, man. That's that's what watch collecting is about when it comes down to it. It's a it's a gut feeling. It's from the heart. It's like that makes me smile. That's good enough. <laughs> it's one of those. It's one. I'm, I'm kind of at that point now in my collecting journey and in this hobby where I'm just like, I just I'm over like the hype and the hype pieces. I mean, it's a Panerai. So I guess like there's a certain level of that within like the Panerai community, but like, I'm very much just like, I just buy what I like. And yeah. I, and I find like I'm selling and flipping a lot less watches and I'm a lot happier just buying what I like. And, and I like it for a reason and it looks cool and it's fun and it fits well in the collection. And that's, that's good enough for me. And yeah, I think it's a sick piece and you got a great deal on it because they're not as hot of a brand right now. So even better absolutely absolutely man yeah um so before we i guess kind of like obviously one of the things that you're really well known for is your photography and i really want to get into your photography but before sure. we do that like you know there was there was Vern before watch studies <laughs> and and i kind of want to get a little bit into that first i want to know a little bit about your journey that led you to where you are now you know you sort of yeah. referenced like even doing some work with like cartier and things like that but before we even get to that point like just where did watches start for you? Was this always something that, you know, was a part of your life? Were there other men in your family that were uh, 
associated or fascinated by watches? Like, like where did really the, the sickness all planted seed? <laughs> yeah, it's uh, that sickness has been around for as long as I can remember. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I kind of think of my watch collecting journey in sort of like three chapters. Uh, the first chapter being when I was a kid, uh, I have an older brother, he's five years older. And for me, he was always my definition of cool, right? Like, you know, and maybe this is a thing with older siblings, but whatever they're into, whatever they're doing as the younger sibling, you look up to them and go, yeah, I want to also do that. I want to grow into that. Or I want to like be eventually able to get that kind of stuff. And my brother was really into fashion and style and watches as a result. And, you know, he had his fair share of fashion watches and such that I don't even know what the what brands they were or whatnot but the ones that really stood up to me the ones that made me go wow were his g-shocks and so he had like a a small handful of g-shocks and I just felt like you know as a kid growing up they just felt like superhero watches Mm -hmm. Uh, they just looked so cool and um, I just remember uh, always wanting to borrow my brother's g-shocks and him not letting me do that and because I was obviously way too young and too irresponsible Um, But that was like one of my earliest kind of recollections of like really wanting and desiring a watch and really appreciating, uh, uh, you know, a certain kind of watch. And, uh, you know, I think, you know, at a certain age, even still as a kid, I I was able to kind of get into watches through things like like a Timex uh, uh, Iron Man, like those kind of like digital watches, which I wish I had. I wish I could still find. I would love and I would totally rock that today. But uh, yeah, that was kind of my first four. Those were my first watches, but they were heavily inspired by my brother's G-Shocks. Um, and then like the second chapter would have been like probably my like late teen years where finally was making some money on my own, got my first part-time job. And then I started kind of getting a sense of like my own style, trying to define who I was. And, you know, there's that whole stage of like figuring out your own individuality and your you know, who you are and whatnot, and then trying to express that through you know, the clothing choice, the shoes you buy, and inevitably the watches. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, during that phase of time, it was just kind of a lot of like broad discovery and exploration of just like stuff that I liked. And it was all very surface level, um, but trying to figure out what was my style. And so I too fell into like, you know, getting a, a handful of different like, you know, fashion brand watches and all that kind of stuff. Uh, but I remember one of the, uh, the, the big moments was when I got my first g-shock and it was uh it was actually a uh, i got a gift card for an online store or one of those you know like one of those deal sites that used to be pretty hot i forget what it's called i think it was like touch of modern or something like that but i'd gotten a gift card for them uh from my team at work uh uh, for my birthday and i just remembered like getting the gift card and remembering exactly or knowing exactly in that moment what i was going to get uh because i had seen these g-shocks and they just reminded me of my childhood they were blacked out they were stealthy they were super cool and i was like yep this is the perfect gift because i know exactly what i'm going to get um and so i actually took that out ahead of time but it was this g-shock um there we go i don't know what the reference number is i don't know if anybody can ever rhyme off g-shock reference numbers or whatnot but um this beast of a thing was it for me when i got it i was like i feel so cool like i'm going back to my childhood um with this thing and uh 
yeah, I, and I wore this uh, a lot, and then eventually I, I, you know, as my style kind of refined itself, and and I got some other pieces. I still wore this to like the gym, and and anytime I just needed to be, uh, you know, a little bit rough or just on the go, I needed something really simple. Um, I swapped it for a NATO not too long ago um, as well, which is kind of a cool look. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, this this kind of represented. Uh, um, you know, me being able to finally afford my own pieces and then saying, I want that piece that I thought was super cool when I was a kid. Uh, and that's why I went with the G-Shock at that point. And so that was kind of the second chapter. And the third chapter was like the introduction of like the concept of milestone watches. Mm-hmm. Um, and essentially it was, uh, so I ran a design studio with my best friend and we ran it for about five years and then we got uh our studio uh this was based in toronto our studio was acquired by shopify um in 2013 and uh it was just a monumental change uh for for us and it was just such a exciting time and so many things were happening that you know in that moment in 2013 my best friend and i hadn't um taken a moment to really celebrate the transition and the, the the start of a new chapter in our professional careers. Um, but it was like maybe, I don't know, at least half a year later or something like that, we found ourselves uh, in Vegas of all places celebrating another mutual friend's birthday. And I remember that that friend uh, was a big watch guy, uh, a big collector of Rolex pieces and IWC in particular. And uh, we were stumbling around through the boutiques and we found an IWC boutique and we walked in and just like you do when you go shopping with friends, you kind of just egg each other on and you go, well, I'll buy something if you buy something. And we realized that in that moment, we hadn't fully commemorated the acquisition in this, you know, this new chapter that we were on, uh, that new chapter we, we were in. We're like, you know what, if you buy something today, I'll buy something today. And this will be kind of our uh, our way of commemorating the acquisition, uh, you know, of, of our design studio. And so we walked out uh, of IWC that day with, uh, with pieces. And so uh, did, I should have taken this out beforehand, but uh, I came out with a IWC engineer W125. Um, nice. This one's the one limited to 750 pieces. Uh, I knew very little about the brand and, and watches in general beyond uh, like surface level style kind of details. And I just, I fell in love with it. I love that it was limited edition. Um, it's just a really gorgeous piece. Uh, my buddy came out with a Portugueser. Um, and this was the beginning of sort of this notion of commemorating life milestones through watches. And it was this watch that kind of sent me down the very slippery slope of understanding the heritage of a brand and where this watch uh, came to be or how this watch came to be and what were its roots and uh, really starting to appreciate the, 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 the finer details of watchmaking and what makes or breaks a really great dial or a strap pairing or, you know, the construction of a case and, and all those kind of things. And so this was, uh, yeah, that watch that made me go, oh, there is so much more to watches. And so this is kind of like the the current chapter and journey of watch collecting that I'm that I'm on. But that was uh, the engineer was sort of the beginning of uh, of many things after that. That's amazing. And so, like, yeah, I mean, that's such a significant way of kind of going about doing your your journey as a watch collector is, is celebrating these milestones. Mm-hmm. And 
you know, picking up these fantastic pieces along the way. And so I guess, where did you sort of, I guess, make that transition now into the next chapter where you're, I'm assuming the next is the next chapter sort of the Instagram journey and watch studies and doing the doing the photography or right, what, right. where did that develop from? Yeah. So, okay. So it's, 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 it's a combination of many things kind of coming together again, very serendipitously. Um, so in my past life, before all the watch studies, I was a designer mm -hmm. and a photographer. I mean, the photography side of things was really more on the hobby side of things, but um, I was doing primarily street and architectural work and I had done it for a handful of years and was lucky enough to do uh, some brand collaborations here and there and uh, was growing my personal uh, Instagram account uh, around this notion of being a street and architectural photographer and uh, my my travels that I was talking about earlier was often if not always fueled by the desire to go and shoot various cities around the world. And so that was a, a real love of mine that complemented the craft of design. And then um, in 2019, no, sorry, in 2020, uh, the, a couple things happened. Uh, the pandemic hit. Uh, I had, uh, my daughter was born in January. My, so she's a pandemic baby. Okay. And the combination of those two things meant I really wasn't I definitely wasn't flying out of the, the city and, and traveling around the world, but I definitely wasn't even leaving the house for the most part, um, given the, pan, the state of the pandemic and, and all that. Um, and so I was just home a lot and I wasn't out taking street photos and, and all that. And so I ended up turning my lens sort of inwards. And I think uh, I experimented with a handful of different things and uh, was doing like we were renovating our home at the time and so I was doing a lot of interior photos and if you go back you know in my Instagram my, my personal Instagram account you'll see kind of the different phases of, of photography but you'll see a bunch of like interior design shots and all that kind of stuff and that was pretty fun and then I don't know somewhere near the very tail end of 2020 was when I was like you know, what would be kind of fun is uh, if I took some photos of watches. In fact, actually, now that I'm thinking about it, it was the Santos that I had uh, to commemorate my daughter's birth that kind of encouraged me to go and take photos of watches because I was like, this is such a cool watch with such a cool heritage that nobody really knows about. Uh, and it connects so well with, um, you know, my daughter Atlas. I just want to tell the story. And, uh, you know, I was running a personal blog at the time. And so I just kind of wrote up a, a story about why this watch and what it stood for. And of course, I wanted to take photos of it. And so that gave me a little bit of a taste of just like, oh, this is actually really neat to be able to tell uh, visual stories about timepieces. And so I, I ended up yeah, doing the Santos story. And then I wrote up another piece about uh, the engineer as my first milestone watch. Um, I was turning 35 that year and uh, I had picked up for my 35th birthday um, this Speedy Mark II, um, again, to commemorate just a handful of things happening, getting engaged, buying our first home, uh, expecting our first, uh, our, our daughter. Um, and I wrote a story about that. And I was like, wow, this is a lot of fun to like tell stories. And um, one thing led to another by the end of 2020, I remember sometime in like, December of 2020 I went up to my wife one day and I was like I think I'm gonna start a watch Instagram account <laughs> and uh totally expecting her to give me a weird look but of course she it, she knows me really well and and she is just the absolute best supporter and cheerleader for me and she said immediately 
cool. Yeah, go and do that. And I did. Uh, and I started the account in, in um, you know, in late December of 2020 as, again, just another side project, another hobby. But it was really just looking at the intersection of watch collecting and photography, two things that I'd been around for a long time that I really, really loved. And um, I just wanted a place to put the photos and tell interesting stories. Uh, but that was sort of the beginning of what watch studies was. And it took me maybe a couple of weeks to fall into some old habits from my you know, design career, which is take everything I know and put it back out into the world. And so I think I did like a, a time lapse of me shooting a flat lay of some sort and then put out some tips and stuff like that. And then people really enjoyed it. And that was when I realized that there was an appetite for the idea of learning how to tell better visual stories through photography um, around the watches that we love and the, and the things that are meaningful to us. Um, and that's kind of, you know, uh, gave watch studies its key kind of mission and narrative um, that, that I kind of follow uh, today. And so I kind of like I've just been looking through your your page here as we've been talking and there's mm -hmm. definitely like a certain um, cohesiveness between all of your shots like I, right. I like obviously which I would describe as your style. Um, right. But like, how would you describe I guess your influences and your style in your own words for the way you go about doing your photography. Yeah, that's a that's a really great question. I think that like a lot of it, the overall um, look and feel of the photos, I think comes from sort of this. It comes from the feeling of uh, the 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 in, the intimacy that you feel when you are creating something, mm -hmm. right? Like for me, when I get to get hands on, create something, design something, photograph something, when I'm just creating something uh, out of nothing. I kind of just like fall into this almost like black hole where nothing around me uh, is going to affect me. I, I am literally completely zoned into what I'm doing. And so there's this kind of, you know, this, it's, it's obviously a very kind of dark and moody atmosphere. And that really comes from this idea that like I am when I'm creating alone with my thoughts and ideas and I'm just lost in this black hole of uh, of, of creativity and, and, and ideation and, and things like that. And so I feel like it's, it's a feeling more than it is an actual like visual aesthetic. Um, and I mean, naturally, you know, in my office and studio um, and the way that I shoot the photos, it ends up being very dark. But for me, this kind of represents the darkness represents focus. It, it represents like commitment and conviction and dedication to the craft. And for as long as I've done any kind of creative work it's always felt like this it's always been like okay I am you know wired in essentially I am tuning out the rest of the world I'm going dark uh, because I'm going right into whatever I'm, I'm working on so like I think that's kind of where that aesthetic really came from for me and it wasn't I it, I didn't like sit there and ponder what I was going to do it just felt it just kind of spewed out of me when I was taking my first photos it just uh it just felt natural is there anybody whose photography before you has influenced your photography now? Yeah, I mean, no doubt, like folks like, oh, okay, so uh, yeah, some of my my favorites that I, that I, they're still inspiring to me, but uh, Samuel for Once, Once Upon a Time piece, 
was one of the earliest accounts uh, I, I followed uh, Kim, uh, Lars, Eric. Uh, he, is, you know, those two accounts uh, alone were the were the ones that really propelled me into like, you know, creating a watch Instagram account. I was following them on my personal account. Um, and that's how, that's how, you know, I've been a fan of theirs for a very long time. And, uh, they just had such a phenomenal eye for watch photography and photography as a whole, um, great aesthetic. And they were just fantastic people. And I, uh, both in my personal account early on before I even started watching, but also when I started watch studies, uh, I reached out to them just to kind of chat and, and pick their brains. And they're both just such amazing, friendly, supportive folks that, uh, yeah, they're really great. They were huge influences. They continue to be huge influences for me. Uh, I'd be lying if I didn't say that, like, you know, something like Peter McKinnon and the whole Pete's Pirate Life kind of uh, genre um, didn't influence me. I love the, the grittiness, but also just what it stood for, like what he stood for, like the hands-on craftsmanship, uh, do cool shit kind of a mentality. Um, that it has always really resonated with everything I've done in my, in my career. Um, so yeah, so those were some of the early influences that certainly uh, influenced me both from a mindset standpoint, but also uh, aesthetically. Yeah. And you mentioned Pete's pirate life and I was looking through and I saw a couple dice with the Pete's pirate life kind of logo on it. So I, I want to talk to you a little bit about your composition. Cause one of the yeah. things that I think like, um, is sort of overlooked particularly in the watch space, because we're not so much looking at the photo as a whole, we're looking at the watch, mm-hmm. but it's sort of an it's sort of a an oversight I think by a lot of people that consume watch media is like all the thought that goes into the things surrounding the watch. You know what sort of what sort of things do you look for in regards to like the items that you would include in a photo or like how they cohesively come together with the watch as well? Because I notice a lot of things like regarding shape and yeah. texture and material, but like how do you go about selecting the items in which you're going to shoot with a watch as well? Yeah, so there's there's a couple of things to touch on there, right? There's like philosophically, uh, how do you compose a photo? And then technically speaking, mm-hmm. from a craft standpoint, uh, how do you do that? So philosophically, you know, um, at the heart of watch studies is storytelling, mm-hmm. right? And this is one of the things that I realized very early on is that the, the, the commonality that exists between watch collecting and photography is the love for storytelling. Go to anybody who owns a watch uh, uh, no matter the size of collection, no matter what the piece is, um, ask them a question about their watch and they will talk to you for hours about it. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, I realize people that, that collect watches or that own watches, that love watches, also love telling stories about that watch and what it means to them and what it signifies for them. And photography is a storytelling medium. And so stories kind of uh, are at the heart of how photography and watch collecting kind of come together. And the reason why that matters is because it's funny, you were saying earlier that like, you know, you look at a watch photo and people are there for the watches. And I, I, I think that there's truth to that. I think that this community in particular are there for the watches, but for a photo to kind of stand on its own and to appeal to any kind of audience, it needs to be able to tell a story. And so while the photos I post certainly put watches at the, at the you know, center stage. Uh, holistically, it's actually about telling a story. A photo is about capturing a moment, but a really great photo is able to have an implied before and an after, 
right? You're looking at the during, you're looking at the moment that got captured, but based on everything you see in the frame, both the watch as well as all the complementary pieces around it, you kind of get a sense of like, what is what was happening right before this? And then what is happening after that? And as a result, you get, you get a sense of a story and a narrative from a single still image. And that is the power of photography, right? You are taking a single still image and you're able to tell an entire story from it. That's really interesting because it, it makes me think of something I read, I want to say maybe last week or something like that, but it was essentially like uh, directors like Quentin Tarantino, for example, mm. all their characters. I mean, we see sort of the snapshot of their character, of his characters within a movie, but every single, um, every single character he actually does like a massive almost novel length write-up on that the right the, the viewer of the film never gets to see or hear about but it's sort of implied by the little things that are going on in the story like one of the things that specifically came to mind was like brad pitt's character in inglorious bastards right right he's got those rope burn marks around his neck which you never hear the story about what happened yeah but it, but it tells you a larger story that happened before with that character and there's more detail about what's going on with the character right. than, than what you necessarily get to see just in the film yeah. and it's very cool to kind of be able to do that with the uh with photography as well too and and, and you see that when you, when you go back now after hearing after hearing that from you and you look at all your photos you definitely see that intention and that mindset behind the photos that you're doing yeah, that's exactly it. It's that uh, there's, there, there is that sense of a backstory and a narrative and like it, it bleeds out beyond the one photo, right? Yeah. Like, sure, there's the one photo somebody may see and you want them to, you want the viewer of a single photo to be able to kind of understand a general story that's happening there. But, you know, the, the, the thing that's really important, especially around Instagram and around building a brand is you want to, you want to think beyond just the single photo, you need mm -hmm. to think about the, the, you know, so to speak, the grid of photos that you have. And that's where the story really unfolds itself. So all these little details that you put into individual uh, photos, they kind of connect together across all the various photos and it tells a broader story. And that story is helpful for two different audiences. One, for the uh, viewers who are consuming the photos and who are following you and that understand what you're all about. Every photo is adding an extra ingredient into the story that they're you know, building in their minds around who you are. But I think that concept of a narrative is equally important for the creator themselves. And early on, you'll always see anybody in any craft in any new account or whatever you know, new thing that you're doing, it's wildly inconsistent and that's okay because you're just experimenting. You don't have a signature. You don't have a persona. You don't have a narrative. So you're going, you're just sprinkling things here and there and you're figuring out what works. But when things really start to kind of lock in, you start going, oh yeah, I really like that. I, I'm about that. I want to go deeper on that. I'm also about this. I'm also about this. And you start connecting dots. And as you look at a time, uh, any kind of account over the timeline, they've been running it you see there's stronger cohesion from photo to photo because there's also greater uh, uh confidence greater awareness of who the creator is for themselves they're like "Ooh, that's what i'm about and you go deeper and deeper and deeper into that and so that's kind of where i think understanding your story understanding the narrative that you're telling uh really pays back to the creator as well it's not just for the audience and, and, and anything that we do creatively it's not always just for who's consuming a lot of it is also for yourself and certainly that's the case when it comes to storytelling which drives um how you compose uh, uh or at least how i compose so that's kind of the first part of the question that you're asking it's thinking about what is a story who am i what is the brand 
Um, and, and so I'm picking uh, props and items and stuff that, uh, that actually resonate with that story. And I'll tell you, everything that shows up in photo, I, I think at least 90% of it, if not more, are things that I actually own and that are scattered around my desk right now. Uh, and so they're not superficial props that I'm just throwing in. I do have some of those things and those are uh, also helpful, but it's, it's good for people to know that these things are, are real. They, they're actually meaningful. They're actually used. They're actually things I really appreciate because they contribute to, to my story and my narrative. Um, the other part is the technical. So the philosophy is just like, what do you do and why do you do that? And then the, the, the technical aspect of composition is the how do you actually go and execute on that? Mm -hmm. And honestly, a lot of that I, I, uh, I borrow from my, my past life. And so I was a designer for you know, 15 plus years and that was, that was my core craft. And I've always been a designer in one way or another, but I spent majority of my career designing uh, digital products first through my design studio and then at Shopify as their design director. Um, and so, you know, I've over the course of that career have really kind of sharpened my senses around, you know, uh, composition and how things come together and how to lead somebody through, uh, you know, a, uh, either a, a figurative story or an actual product experience or whatever it may be. But essentially every element that you see in frame or in the case of, you know, when I'm designing apps and websites and things like that, everything that you experience and see and interact with needs to contribute to an overall journey or an overall narrative or an overall story. Um, and so everything kind of plays a role. And, you know, compositionally, there's a lot of kind of like design techniques around giving focus. And so when I'm choosing the, the props and everything like that, that I put into a frame, everything is sort of there intentionally in order to drive focus to the parts of the story that matter and drive focus away from the parts of the story that do not matter. In the case of watch photography, we always wanna bring focus to, uh, to the watch and oftentimes the person wearing the watch. And so you'll see that in a lot of my photos, everything uh, in the frame uh, is contributing to driving somebody's eye towards that. And whether it's, you know, think about spatial relationship, uh, or directionality, uh, every little prop, every little item, every little knife and whiskey bottle and everything like that is sort of just kind of driving people's focus towards the thing that I want them to pay most attention to. And so that just comes from sort of the, you know, over a, over a, a, a decade of just experience uh, around technical execution of uh, uh, giving uh, you know, creating great composition and telling great stories and leading people through the right journey that you want them to go through. That's, that's outstanding. And, and so further to the technical side, just while we're on the subject, yeah. can you describe a little bit of what your setup is? Like what kind of equipment you're using and um, I guess what you would recommend for somebody getting into watch photography to use or to consider equipment wise? Yeah, I mean, I'll answer the, the, that last question really quickly. So for anybody who wants to get into watch photography, shoot with whatever you have. Shoot with your, shoot with your, your, your camera phone. That's probably what everybody has and what everybody doubts they could use for watch photography. But trust me, you can get so much out of, especially any modern camera phone, like they are just incredibly capable. Um, not only that, but when you, when you just use a phone, which is 
uh, simpler to use because you're not fiddling with knobs and you're not stressing out over, you know, shutter speed and ISO and all that kind of stuff. What you get to focus on is uh, the fundamentals, which is composition, lighting, um, and things of that nature, how to maintain focus uh, and drive focus in the way that you're laying out your, your frames. Um, I, I got into photography through mobile photography. That was my foray into it. And I, and I shot uh, with just my phone, learning photography for uh, I think three to four months before even picking up an actual like dedicated camera. Um, and so I, I highly recommend uh, people to start with that. And I do, I try to have a handful of tutorials um, that are focused specifically on mobile photography because actually more than 50% of my audience uh, don't own a or don't shoot actively with a dedicated camera and they only shoot with their phones and so uh, I've kind of made it uh, a key goal to like put out uh, you know an equal amount of mobile photography tutorials as I do with uh, dedicated cameras um, so that's the quick answer to what people should start with um, I have a pretty stripped down I feel like I have a pretty stripped down uh, setup um, and I try to use accessible, for the most part, accessible tools and, and, and things like that. And I do that sort of as a means of like staying grounded. And, and because I write tutorials and create content for people wanting to get better at photography uh, and want to get started in photography, I don't ever want to like get to a point where I'm like using like super professional industry grade uh, tools uh, where I'm like detached from like the people who are just starting out. Um, mm. And so, yeah, I'm using, so I shoot Fuji um, and I shoot Fuji because I've always shot Fuji. And for anybody who's ever DM'd me and asked me about how to choose a camera, my best advice is go to a camera store, pick up every single camera brand and go with what feels best in your hand. It is technically speaking, most cameras are probably the same at this point, but it's what feels right and what inspires you and what gets you excited to take photos and to pick up this thing that's how you should choose a camera brand. Um, and I went with Fuji because it just felt right in my hand. Uh, so I shoot Fuji um, and uh, the desk that I'm sitting in front of is the surface that I shoot 99% of every photo, uh, just out of frame right here that you, oh, there you go, there's the corner. This is a soft box okay. uh, from newer um, and it comes in a set. I have one up here as well and one over here. Um, and they are really affordable, really accessible. Uh, I bought them off of Amazon. And uh, that they're all I use for lighting. Um, and what else? Uh, that's you know, I, I feel like from a technical standpoint, those are like kind of the key ingredients. Everything else is sort of staging, uh, staging materials. Like I have foam boards that I bought from a craft store that I use as sort of pseudo reflectors um, or things to like kind of flag lights and, and all that stuff. But yeah, you just need camera and some good lighting. You don't even need the soft boxes to be honest. You can uh, just use great window lighting. Um, on my site, I do have my gear list published. So every camera, every lens I use, every uh, lighting setup, every mount. Um, I do, okay, I use a mount as well because I do a lot of flat lays and overhead shots and things like that. So I have a, a, a mount that is C-clamped to my desk and lets me kind of uh, hang my camera above the desk and shoot downwards. It's just so much easier than holding it. Uh, although I started off just by holding it. But yeah, I use a, I use a mount. Um, I can't remember the name of the brand for some reason off the top of my head, but it's all listed on my gear list on my on, on watchstudies.co. Um, yeah, that's kind of the gist of what I shoot with. That's terrific. And and you sort of like, just through the conversation we've had to this point, sort of done one already, but if you were to like summarize 
for someone new coming into the space yeah. what like your like top three tips for taking you know good watch shots would be for someone brand new maybe just starting out with their mobile phone what would they be um find good lighting mm -hmm. uh second is get really comfortable and familiar with everything you can do with your phone camera and there's so much more than you than, than you think you can do mm -hmm. uh you were just saying right before we 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 uh we started recording you were saying you just learned that you could like adjust the aperture yes <laughs> of, you know uh, uh, on your iphone uh yeah there's like you know especially if you have a newer phone there's like you can shoot raw with it now you can adjust the exposure mm -hmm. um you know there's a lot of really neat features uh that you can do with a with a phone camera that you can take advantage of on a phone camera. So get really comfortable with it. Uh, you know, know it like the back of your hand, and then you're worried less about fiddling with technical things while you're shooting, and you're just worried about the actual composition. Uh, and then the third thing I would say is like master one shot style at a time. Um, you know, get the get the wrist shot down, Pat. Right? Like I've got a really dead simple tutorial for like a really great looking wrist shot that is just one step above like just holding your arm out and, and taking a photo like that um and it's it's kind of like a like a hack or a cheat to just get really great depth into your shot show off the watch show off uh you know the the do the wrist check and you can do it with literally any camera i just posted a reel the other day that shows me doing it with uh, an iPhone with my iPhone. Um, it's just a super simple shot to, to nail. And if, if wrist shots aren't your thing, I don't know, get a flat lay uh, under your belt, get a table shot on your belt. There are, I have tutorials for all of those uh, on how you can construct those shots uh, on my site. But yeah, just nail one shot style and get comfortable with it, figure out why that works. And then, you know, kind of uh, uh, go from there. Terrific. Those, those are fantastic tips. And I'm definitely going to check some out. I'm still, I'm still, I'm not primarily like a uh, watch photography page, but I'm always looking at ways to improve just because, you know, I have probably a very, very rudimentary understanding. Yeah. That's even, that's a generous term. It's <laughs> calling it an understanding of, yeah. of, of, of photography and watch photography, but it's so cool to see that there's, you know, you've made these tutorials and you're, you're, you know, creating a better space for the, the watch community by making that information accessible. Yeah. And, and, and I'll say that like majority of my audience are exactly like you, where, uh, you know, they're not, people aren't striving to be watch photographers mm -hmm. in, in a lot of cases. They're not trying to be, uh, make a living and a career out of being uh, a watch photographer and doing watch photography. They're just trying to tell stories, better stories, better visual stories around the things that are meaningful to them. And photography is just the means to an end. It's the vehicle. It's the outlet for creativity. It's the outlet for storytelling. And so a lot of people are like you. And I don't think you need to have a watch photography account in order to get into watch photography. You just need to love watches and want to tell stories about them and let photography be a, a one of many tools in your arsenal in the way that you tell those stories. Yeah, I think that's that's 100% bang on. That makes perfect sense to me. So with regards to, um, I guess, you know, you have, I mean, I'm just sort of pull this up really quickly and take a look yeah. here. I mean, you have about 571 posts on this page. You have a crazy amount of followers, almost 27 and a half thousand followers, which is amazing. But what is your, if you had to like summarize it, what would you say has been like your favorite series to shoot or your favorite shot or your favorite watch to shoot? Yeah, the, uh, I mean, definitely I feel like my favorite type of photos to shoot are flat lays. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I just feel like there's so much 
story to be told with a flat lay. Mm -hmm. It just gives you like such a wonderful canvas to like add a number of different items into it. Um, and so I, I just really enjoy doing flat lays and I enjoy kind of like coming up with different compositions and it's all following the same techniques, but it, you know, the fact that you can, um, create, you know, an infinite amount of different compositions for a flat lay. Um, I think, I think they're just a lot of fun to do. Um, favorite watch to shoot. I think that changes over time. I think, uh, it's hard to ignore, uh, how photogenic the black bay 58 is and this mm. was like this was the watch that got me to start watch studies or the, you know the one that like made me go oh yeah i think people want to see photos of this watch and i feel like i was like you know not that anybody needs to see a black bay 58 at this point but um you know i i came in pretty late into you know the the black bay 58 hype i think i got it uh i got it I bought it on the day, on my very last day at Shopify. So that's why I bought it. I bought it to commemorate that. And then it, of course it arrived and I started taking photos of it. And I was like, I like these photos. I want to put them somewhere. And my personal account um, audience doesn't care for my watches. <laughs> and so that's what, you know, made me go, Ooh, I, I think I need to create a new account. Uh, and the Black and 58 is just, uh, it's just such a photogenic piece. Every aspect of it um, just photographs so well. Uh, and so, it, you know, it was definitely one of my favorite pieces to shoot for uh, a very, very long time. Um, I love shooting the Santos. I think the Santos is, I mean, I, obviously I'm biased. I've talked about this a million times, but uh, uh, the Santos is gorgeous. It's beautiful. It looks great at every angle. It's surprising at every angle. You know, if you can catch a little bit of the side profile, everybody kind of goes, oh, I didn't even realize like how clean that edge is. And so I think it has a lot of like really nice little surprises packed into the case. Uh, it's also a really easy watch to shoot. I feel like sometimes I'm cheating when I'm shooting a Santos. It's got uh, a white dial and you're not overly worried about crazy reflections off the dial. I will say though, that the bezel can sometimes be a pain because it is not only a scratch magnet, but reflective like crazy and it catches a lot of light. But if you can shoot it at the right angle, um, yeah, the Santos is just phenomenal. This by the way is the medium Santos. I'm just going to slip this in. Uh, this is uh, this was recently acquired just earlier this year uh, to commemorate the birth of my son. And so uh, as I was struggling to figure out uh, what watch uh, I should get to commemorate his birth, I felt like, why not stay in the Santos family? Uh, and so now both my daughter and my son will inherit their respective Santos's, Santai, Santis, when, uh, when they grow up. Uh, and so, yeah, the Santos, I just, I love... I love shooting it and it's extra special because it's a, it's a meaningful watch to me. Um, I'm, I'm really excited to shoot this one. I'm actually overwhelmed by the excitement to shoot the, the Cartier uh, Basculante. Um, but yeah, I'm excited to shoot this. I probably won't share this until sometime next week, or I might share it tomorrow. I don't know, depending on how excited I get. Um, but yeah, those are some of my favorite. Oh, the, I, I have to mention the, the IWC Pilot 36 is just such a great watch to shoot. Uh, I mean, it's a great watch to wear. I love it. It's one of my favorites. It's my one of my go-tos. And uh, I was a little iffy on the blue AR coating on the crystal originally. I would, I, I, I admit, I didn't actually know that it had the blue AR uh, while I was uh, at the boutique when I was picking it up. Uh, and then I realized that afterwards when I brought it home and was taking my first photos with it and I have grown to love it. 
Um, it's always interesting to me whenever there's a little bit of a blue detail on any watches, whether it's the blue hands of mm. the Santos or the blue AR on the, on the Pilot 36, uh, because in my editing style, I actually desaturate all the blues uh, in order to get these kind of like really pure, moody blacks and grays. Uh, and blue is a natural color that gets casted on a lot of different things. And so when you can desaturate all the blues, you get a whole different vibe. Um, but of course, if a watch has blue in it, you got to bring it back for the realism. And so it's always uh, a little bit more uh, uh, of an interesting editing experience whenever you want to bring blue details back into a watch specifically. So those are some of my favorite watches to shoot. There are, I know you didn't ask this, but there are watches that are just a pain to shoot. I love the watches, but they're just such a pain to shoot. Um, well, that's a great segue. Tell me, yeah. tell, tell me about the biggest pain in the ass watches to shoot. Okay, I'll tell you the, the biggest pain in the ass for me is uh, the Seamaster 300 1957 reissue trilogy edition. What a Gorgeous. beautiful watch! Though. What a beautiful watch, though. Oh man, it is insane. I hunted this one down for uh, you know over a year. Um, and finally found a pre-owned one uh, at a good price and good condition, but it is such a gorgeous piece. Um, and I loved it for all the reasons that I loved it because it wasn't a black Bay 58. Let's, let's put it that way. It is like, it measures up perfectly with a black Bay 58 in so many different ways, but it's not a black Bay 58. And I, it was at a time when like, I was just kind of growing a little bit tired of my own black Bay 58. Uh, and I just love that it was everything it was, but not a black Bay 58. Anyway, it is such a pain to shoot. And um, Omega loves its polished surfaces mm -hmm. and polished surfaces are just so hard to manage the reflections and lighting off of. Um, and this Seamaster is uh, no exception to that. The domed crystal uh, presents its own little challenge. Um, it The domed crystal, uh, the reflections off the dome crystals are sort of like the equivalent of a wide angle lens. And so, you know, if you got a flat crystal, you're just kind of reflecting everything that's in front of you, um, like a, like a, like a standard lens would be. And then if you have a wide angle lens, you're just suddenly seeing everything on the left and right and the periphery of it. And so the domed crystal does exactly that. You put this down and you try to shoot it. I'm getting reflections, you know, off my ceiling and all that kind of stuff. And so, you know, the softbox needs to come a lot closer to the crystal. I need to like get a million different black, foam boards to like cover up uh you know all the reflections so it's just a it's a strenuous shooting experience with this one and it's i don't think i've ever shot like one photo with this watch where i'm like yeah i perfectly executed that one it's mostly like i think that'll do <laughs> so that one's a hard piece to, to shoot um i find the explorer i have a uh 114270 uh, uh 36 from 2001 that I really love as well. I, by coincidence, picked this up the week uh, we found out we were expecting my son. And so that's always been special. I wore this in the delivery room when my son came into the world. Uh, and uh, so yeah, this piece was uh, is really special to me. And I also hunted this one down for over a year and finally found a good one. Uh, but it's also deceivingly hard to shoot. That, that polished bezel um, picks up a lot of light. The steel, that that particular steel on the bracelet for whatever reason really picks up a lot of light and is extra reflective and takes a little extra editing uh, uh, in Lightroom to kind of bring it down so that you can still see some of the brush details on the bracelet. I don't know, maybe somebody in your audience knows exactly why, uh, whether it's a Rolex specific thing or this Explorer uh, thing, but uh, 
yeah, it's a lot harder to shoot. It just picks up a lot of light, um, but it's manageable. Oh, the, I mean, the, the dial, the black dial is glossy as well. So again, if there's any speck of dust on the crystal, you're kind of seeing three layers of it, like three reflections mm -hmm. of it uh, through the dial. Uh, so that takes a lot of healing uh, and editing in post as well. But yeah, anyway, that's my little rant on challenging watches to shoot. Uh, that's cool. But so moving out of, I guess, like the photography side of it, <laughs> yeah. unless, unless there's anything else you want no, to no, share. No, 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 please take me away from that topic because I'll go on for hours. Fair enough. But moving into just the collection itself, I mean, you've, yes. sort, of, you've sort of shown us uh, quite a few pieces that are in your collection. Um, but can you kind of talk to us a little bit about like, so what is your philosophy around uh, collecting? I know you talked about yeah. significant uh moments in time that you commemorate a watch with but more so towards like okay you you're commemorating an important moment in time but why do you pick the watches that you pick what is like the cohesive trait that you look forward and look for in these watches that kind of brings them all together into your collection and that you find desirable about them yeah uh great question i wish it was actually a little it's i mean it's definitely more art than science as it is from probably many collectors it's it's no fun when it's like too calculated. I'd say the Santoses are the ones that are like the most in tune with exactly what they represent, right? Like the fact that their heritage and the history matches perfectly with the names of our uh, of our kids. Uh, uh, again, my daughter's name is Atlas. My son's name is Jet. And so both of them all about exploration, travel, flight, et cetera. And so the Santoses are the ones that connect with it the most. Everything else is more loosely connected to it because I acquired it at that time, or I, I acquired it with the intention of commemorating a specific milestone. I'd say that when I think about watch, like buying any kind of watch, um, especially early, early on when I was first starting my, my journey, I think I thought about versatility a lot, right? You know, and I, and I encourage a lot of people who are getting into watch to think of it this way, but like when you pick up a watch, you're ideally picking up something that is versatile enough to uh, to, that you can wear it in a number of different scenarios, uh, whether you're going to work or whether it's on the weekend or you're going for lunch or a nice dinner or whatever, like you have the opportunity to kind of dress it up, dress it down, uh, do whatever with it. Um, and so you, I thought a lot about versatility in the beginning. As the collection kind of grew and I had a handful of different pieces, then I started thinking about coverage instead. So I didn't need one piece to do all these different things anymore. I could then start specializing, like I could get specialized pieces for the dress occasion, the more sportier look, the more like relaxed, you know, um, uh, dinner outing or whatever, uh, where you're not wearing a suit, but you don't, you know, you're not, uh, you want to wear something uh, better than a G-Shock or something like that, right? So then I started thinking about like, okay, coverage for the collection. In the collection across all the pieces, do you have coverage of all the different scenarios that exist into your lifetime? And so those are sort of like the, the core tenets of, of collecting for me right now uh, from a very practical standpoint. Uh, redundancy sort of bugs me to a certain extent. Um, you know, the fact that I have a Black Bay 58 and a Seamaster 300 bugs me just a little bit. In fact, I, I still think that eventually I'm going to, you know, the Seamaster 300 is going to leave the collection. I, I actually have listed it before and then pulled back on it. I was like, yeah, I kind of like it. I kind of like it. And so I'm going to hold on to it. But um, that little bit of redundancy kind of uh, bugs me. Um, but it's not even just the function of it, but like, it's just the fact that the Black 58 and the Seamaster 300 look very similar to each mm -hmm. other. They're both vintage inspired 39 millimeter, uh, dive bezels, et cetera. Um, 
but you know, if, 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 if I have two chronographs that look completely different, like the IWC engineer and the, the speedy Mark two, like they're both chronographs. They look completely different though. They have different styles. They have different vibes and just means that I can wear them in different occasions. Then that, that feels all right by me. Um, yeah. And so I, I think that's kind of what I think about. And then the last thing, and probably the most important thing, and the only thing that maybe the only thing that matters is uh, what makes me happy <laughs> you know there are just those pieces that just like you look at it and you're like ah oh, that's so cool that's fun um and like you know i fell in love with bell and ross watches really early on just because they just look so different yes. and they just look fun and they look like they can take a beating mm -hmm. uh, i picked this one up in uh paris shortly after we found out we were expecting uh, my daughter we were just about to go on a trip when we found out and uh and we did a stop off in, in paris and i went into the bell and ross boutique just to kind of look at stuff and then um you know the person pulled out this from behind the counter this is a sorry i keep have to remember that your podcast audience can't see what i'm holding up right now but this is a uh i think it's a i don't know the series number i'm sorry but this is the bronze diver with the olive green uh olive green dial and it is a limited edition to, I forget how many pieces, but the person pulled this out and showed me that this was number two in the series. And uh, that had me hooked. I was like, I don't think I've ever seen a single digit limited edition serialized uh, watch. Um, and so that had me hooked. And it's just so fun. Like the square case, it just, you know, I, I kind of mentioned that I like watches with double take factors. And this is kind of it. Like when people see this on the wrist, they're like, what is that? Show me that. And then the fact that it's it's bronze and it's really patina because I, I've taken this on a couple of trips. I was I last took this uh, you know a couple of years ago to Spain and you know the patina on it reminds me of like the beaches and the water and the salt that's gone on it. And I refuse to clean it because I just love the fact that it has those memories attached to it. Um, yeah. So you know that's just a watch that I I love because it's fun and it makes me smile and uh, I feel like so much of majority of watch collecting is just that it's just makes it makes it happy for sure are there any pieces in your collection that you haven't highlighted or shown us already that you'd like to share um let me think I've kind of flashed a handful of different things I mean be remiss if I didn't mention that I I own it SKX this was also one of the early pieces that really got me hooked but um on that trip to spain that was a post-wedding bachelor party uh because i didn't really have a bachelor party with my with my buddies but we all took a we all took a trip to uh, barcelona and um you know we had a very small wedding so i didn't have uh, all my groomsmen and i didn't have, it was just like kind of an intimate small direct family wedding and so this uh this trip with the guys were, was sort of like a, a mini celebration and they would have been if i had a full size wedding and everything they would have been the groomsmen and i wanted to kind of say thank you for you know uh everything and the friendship and, and everything they've done for me and so i uh got hooked on modding like a couple months before that and i ended up deciding to mod six SKXs um, and engraved the backs and all that kind of stuff and uh, presented it to them when we got to Barcelona as, as their thank you gifts. And the funny thing is that, that those SKXs have sparked many watch addictions. For many of those guys, for at least four of those guys, this was like one of their first serious watches. And all of those guys have a pretty great collection at this point. This was a couple of years ago. This is like three or four years ago. Um, 
And so I'm pretty happy about that. <laughs> um, but yeah, the SKX is, is really special to me. It has a great, it helps me stay connected to my buddies back in, in, in Toronto. Um, what else? And there are some pieces that were, that I've gotten through like brand collaborations or through uh, working with brands um, that are really special to me. Um, you know, I think this uh, worn around 10th anniversary uh, Seiko that they had sent me uh, is really special. You know, Warner Wound is is a really great household publication, and mm. it just felt really special to me that like they put me on. They I was on a list with where they had reached out and they said, "Hey, we'd love to have you preview this piece as we celebrate the tenth anniversary." And uh, for me, it was more like, "Oh, cool! I made it to someone's list." <laughs> uh, so that's that's a really cool and special piece. And then um, more recently, I, I started working with Timex and the James brand, uh, and they had just released this uh, really cool collaboration on the Timex Expedition. Nice. Um, this is the white dial one that I'm holding up for camera right now, but uh, I started with a black dial version, and it was just kind of special because the James brand was one of my favorite EDC brands, um, and I, as a person that really doesn't, I'm not outdoorsy, I'm not really great I'm not really great with like tools and all that kind of stuff, but, and so a lot of the majority of pocket knives and all the kind of stuff out there kind of scare and intimidate me. But when I saw the James brand, I really loved um, their design philosophy around their pieces. And when I spoke to them and, 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 and spoke to, to spoke to Brian, the, the founder about it, I really enjoyed their philosophy around how they create their products. And, um, and so they were one of my favorite EDC brands. And then they had kind of reached out and said, Hey, uh, we're about to do a project with Timex uh, where we're going to do a, uh, a co-branded watch and you do watch photography and also uh, straddle over into the EDC world, uh, which you like to work together. And so that was just kind of like, again, another milestone for the watch studies kind of journey where I'm like, ooh, somebody thought of me. I was top of mind for somebody to work on this really cool project. And, you know, Timex is obviously such a badass brand because it was like, Timex was literally my first watch as a child. It was the it was the brand that I grew up with. It's like the first name that I associated with with the watch. Um, that alongside with G-Shock and Casio, um, and so it was just such a joy to be able to work on something um, that was co-branded both by Timex and the James brand. So um, yeah, that piece is also pretty special to me too. That's terrific. Um, are there any other brands that you've uh, maybe would be interesting in shooting or that you haven't had the opportunity to shoot yet, but you're looking forward to? Ooh, I mean, I mean. That's a big question. That is a big <laughs> question. That is a big question. Um, I'm trying to think. There are some really interesting uh, independent brands that are coming out these days um, that I would really love to get my hands on. Sorry, my headphones are like screwing with my glasses at this point. Um. What's it? Uh, the the Furlan Mari uh, release is actually really cool. I'd love to get my hands on that and just kind of shoot the little details. I think they've done some really um, great work on just the latest release and it's just miles ahead of like kind of their first release, uh, even though their first release was obviously uh, heavily hyped as well. There is another brand that the name kind of slips past my mind right now that I, uh, I'll try to think of it later, but they also just did, um, they're the brand that they just put out something. There was only 99 pieces and everybody lost their shit because like three minutes after the launch, everything was already accounted oh, for. Uh, uh, LaVenture. Yeah. Yeah. Like th they look like um, 
some really cool pieces and, mm-hmm. and you know kudos to them for uh you know all the successes that they've had but that seems like a really great piece that i'd love to get a whole lot i love working with independent brands that are just not afraid to break the mold and do something a little bit different uh i love working with vero uh vero is one of the the brands that i've worked with for a while now and they continue to break the mold uh, uh first with their dive watch and then uh the open water dive watch and then with their workhorse recently as like an adventure and field watch, um, just super cool pieces. I love um, Nevada. Uh, I think Nevada is such a cool mm. thing with the, especially with the story. Uh, this Chronomaster has seen a lot of risk time recently. It just, it just looks really badass, uh, and I love that it's sort of like an, an old brand that was kind of brought back to life. Um, and so there's a really great story of entrepreneurship uh, associated with this and this new generation of Nevada. Um, you know, connected with that as Excelsior Park. But anyway, these are watches that I've had a chance to hold on to, but I love brands within that sort of uh, realm that are just not afraid to be bold. Because, if you know, as an independent brand, if you're going to launch something, you might as well do something that's fun and a little bit crazy. Um, and that's part, you know, that comes from your wildest dreams rather than just kind of fall into the template and what everybody else is already doing in the industry. So uh, anytime I come across a brand like that, I you know, I, I love the idea of being able to work with them. That's terrific. Absolutely. I'm sure you'll get uh, many, many more brands going forward. They'll continue to reach out to you. I mean, I, I, from what I've seen, you, you're absolutely killing it. So I think that there's lots, that. lots of excitement in the, uh, in the industry about what you're doing and, and brands want to be a part of that story as well, too. Um, Vern, you've given so much of your time today to, to talk to us and, and share so much about yourself and, and what you do. And, you know, I, no one can say you're lacking in passion and enthusiasm. I think that you, you know, I, I love what you're doing. I think you're doing something so incredibly cool. And these pieces that you're chronicling and the stories that you're telling, I think are something that's going to remain an extremely significant part of our, of our, of our community. Um, one last question I'm going to ask you as yeah. we kind of, as we kind of move out here uh, is just not so much focused on photography, but just on the community as a whole. And it's one that I've been asking people kind of a lot lately, especially those who are like the more mature collectors or established collectors that have been in the scene for a while and are kind of doing their own thing mm-hmm. is just for someone new coming into the space mm-hmm. and they maybe they're just getting into collecting. Maybe they're just getting into photography. Maybe they're just getting into both or they're just coming into the watch community to see what it's all about. What is one piece of advice that you would give someone brand new to this space that maybe comes from the culmination of lessons learned in your own time after being in this space for as long as you have been? Man, I mean, my, my first intuition was just like, do what you love. But I like that sounds cliche. And I feel like I say it enough times, <clears throat> maybe anybody would, would say that, but like, um, that it sounds a little bit too cheesy, but it truly, I do believe in that. Like, you follow your heart do what you love don't do it if you don't love it like it's as simple as that everything mm-hmm. and if you have that philosophy at every stage of your life in every aspect of your life um it can never really steer you wrong but that's the cliche response i think if i can kind of fine-tune that a little bit i'd say be intentional about everything that you do right i i believe that if you are intentional about the decisions that you make and the things that you do and the things that you choose to be surrounded with, you are always in greater control of where you can take your life next, Mm -hmm. right? If you do things arbitrarily, if you let things just happen to you, 
you don't really have the power to affect change to those things because you don't know why they happen. You don't have a sense of the decisions that went into that because you didn't make any decisions around that. And so I think that um, being intentional about what you do uh, and when something happens, ask why, be inquisitive, be curious, try to get into the nuts and bolts of like, why did something happen or why did you do something? Uh, and then when you can figure out the why, you can apply that as, as like a personal truth. And then the next time around, be more intentional and be more deliberate around that decision. And so I, I, I just explained that in an extremely like lofty philosophical kind of a way. But like when you take that idea of intentionality and deliberateness into different facets of your life, a lot of really cool things can come out of it. And that applies to collecting and the watches that you that you want to acquire and that you want to wear and be deliberate and intentional about who you are and and pick the pieces that express um you know what you're all about and the things that you stand for the things that you aspire to be um but it's also you know an important philosophy to apply to like any kind of craft whether you're in photography or not um being deliberate about your craft about being better at your craft being um, the, the version of the creator that you want to be, uh, knowing how you can take the next, you know, one to five to 10 steps ahead of you, having that picture in your mind and being intentional about how you tackle each of those uh, little challenges uh, will go a long way. And you're not going to be drifting and floating out in space and just wondering why, you know, why isn't my Instagram account growing? Why, uh, why aren't I getting better at photography? Take control over the things in your life, be intentional about the decisions you make, surround yourself with the stuff you love. Uh, that's what I would say. <laughs> that's terrific advice. And I, I would think that, uh, you know, that would be an excellent uh, first day lecture for Watch Studies 101. So <laughs> I would love to do a course one day. I, I get DM'd like, I want to say daily. I mean, it's like every, at least every couple of days, people like, where's the course? Like, where's the thing that pieces together all the tutorials into like one cohesive course? And so like that, that's on my bucket list of like one day I'd love to put out like an actual end to end, start to finish course that touches on a handful of different topics. Uh, but yeah, for now, you know, the tutorials exist out there for people that want to go and tackle that. And if you want to get the more like behind the scenes view and want to take, you, you know, the craft of watch photography up a notch, uh, you know, I've got a Patreon page as well that where I share a lot of behind the scenes stuff uh, on a weekly basis on how photos come to life and, and all that. And uh, anyway, sorry, I went on a tangent off of like one thing that you said. I'm sorry. No, that's I do a, that. <laughs> that's, that's a perfect segue into where I was going next. So drop us your socials, let everyone know where they can reach out to you, chat with you, converse with you, enjoy your content, enjoy your courses, all that stuff. Yeah. At watch studies on Instagram hit me up there, follow me, shoot me a DM, ask me questions along the way, whatever it may be. Uh, yeah, that's my primary place where I interact with uh, community members. Um, the website watchstudies.co uh, is where you'll find the huge bank of tutorials that I've been writing uh, since the very beginning. Um, and uh, yeah, you can find the whole archive there as well as the gear list and, and everything there. And then for those who want to take it, uh, take things one step further, uh, you can become a watch study member of my Patreon page um, and you can get 
access to uh, tons of behind the scenes content. I show people, I show my members how I shoot photos, how I light photos, how I stage things, the little in bits and pieces in of insights that go into shooting a photo. Lately, because I've been posting a lot of reels, I've been doing a lot of like behind the scenes, like behind the reel uh, insights, showing people how I do transitions and stuff like that. Uh, members also get access to exclusive discounts through the brands that I work with. Uh, a lot of them give me something um, special to kind of give just to members. And so there's a ton of like little discounts for great products that I love and great brands that I love working with uh, for members as well. Um, anyway, yeah, there's all that stuff is there. Watch studies um, at watch studies, watch studies.co and the Patreon page. I'll be sure to drop links to everything you mentioned in the description cool. box. I appreciate below, that on YouTube and on uh, the podcast platforms for those that read description boxes on podcasts. <laughs> It'll be, they'll be there. Cool. Um, yeah. I'll make sure to put it all in there. Likewise for myself, if anyone has any questions, comments, feedback, or just wants to uh, get in contact with me, you can shoot me an email at Rico's watches podcast at gmail.com. Additionally, if you want to, uh, confer with myself or anybody else kind of in the Rico's Watches podcast community, you can head over to the Rico's Watches podcast Instagram page. Uh, that's just Rico's Watches podcast, which is the kind of primary central hub for the show. Great place to follow along for uh, my own wrist shots, my own photography. It's not nearly as nice as Burns, but I do my best. <laughs> and uh, uh, updates and, and new episodes and things like that, the occasional giveaway contest, that kind of stuff as well, too. Uh, additionally, if you're enjoying my episodes in the uh, audio medium across various podcasts and platforms, but would like to enjoy it in the visual medium, which I would uh, highly recommend for this episode because Vern has a fantastic camera and setup, and he's a good-looking guy. So you want to uh, you want to hop you want to hop on and uh, head over to the Rico's Watches Podcast uh, YouTube channel, which is just Rico's Watches Podcast on YouTube. Just like, subscribe, leave a comment, hit the bell icon, all that YouTube stuff, just to help with the algorithm, so more people can discover. The channel as well too burn thank you so much it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the show and chatting with you today you've shared so much insight and so much about yourself this is a fantastic episode and and i know uh, people are going to resonate with a lot of what you said and really enjoy uh, this episode thanks so much for having me it's an honor i've been a fan for for a long time so it's a real joy to be here and I had a lot of fun so thank you so much for having me likewise you take care Bye -bye. take care bye